age of big data allows researchers to uncover how real-world patients with geographic atrophy behave. What did a deep dive into the IRIS registry find? I'm Greg Notstein here with Scott Chris Wanis, and this is New Retina Radio's ASRS coverage from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. We spoke with Dr. Durga Borkar about her research team's findings on which GA patients are most at risk to being lost to follow-up, which may inform treatment strategies once a drug is approved. And we sat down with Dr. Ali Khan, whose meta-analysis of Rise Ride and 3DRCR retina network studies explored possible outcomes gaps in black and white patients with diabetic eye disease. Keep it here for New Retina Radio's coverage of the ASRS 2021 meeting. Although patients with geographic atrophy compose a large percentage of those with retinal disease, little is known about the real-world behavior of GA patients, in part because there are so few CMS claims data about them. As the AAO IRIS registry grows in scope, however, researchers are beginning to learn more about the behavior of this patient population in the real world. Joining us to talk about her ASRS presentation on this topic is Dr. Durga Borkar. Dr. Borkar is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, and she is in practice at the Duke Eye Center. Dr. Borkar, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. The Verona team is really excited about the opportunity to discuss our findings. So there are so many questions to ask about GA patients in the real world. What did your research team hope to find? I agree. This is a huge area of research. We had two main objectives in our study. One was to compare the demographic and clinical characteristics of geographic atrophy patients with less than two years of follow-up to those with two years or more of follow-up. And we really wanted to determine which variables increase the odds of having less than two years of follow-up, which we defined as being lost follow-up in this study. The population with GA in this country is massive, and many of these patients have other ocular diseases. Who exactly did you include in this study? That's a great point. We had to be really specific with our inclusion and exclusion criteria. This was a retrospective study of data from the IRIS registry, which contains data from over 70 million patients. The analyses for this study were conducted by Verona Health, which is AAO's exclusive data partner for the registry. Overall, we identified 230,000 patients with an ICD-10 code for geographic atrophy and at least one eye in 2016 and 2017. And practices had to be contributing data to the IRIS registry for at least two years to have their patients included in this study. Patients with bilateral disease were included, but patients with a history of a cordial neovascular membrane before they had geographic atrophy in the study eye were excluded, as were those with other retinal diseases or missing information. This left us with 58,000 patients who were categorized as lost to follow-up and 85,000 patients who were placed in the follow-up group. That's a lot of patients. What did you find when you started to dig deeper? Well, a few things stuck out to us when we looked at top-level demographic information. One is that those who were lost to follow-up were on average three and a half years older than the follow-up group. Lost to follow-up patients had slightly higher proportions of Medicaid or self-pay or no insurance plans, a difference of about 2% between the two groups. And patients who were lost to follow-up were much less likely to be under the care of a retina specialist. There was a difference of about 10% between the two groups. And tell me how baseline vision factors into follow-up patterns. Overall, the worse vision was at baseline, the less likely patients were to follow-up. 
So 25% of patients who were lost to follow-up had a starting visual acuity of worse than 2200. And nearly half of eyes that were not lost to follow-up had at least 2040 vision at baseline. Were there any data on other ocular diseases in this patient population? Yes. Patients in the follow-up group were significantly more likely to have a choroidal neovascular membrane in their fellow eye. And I assume that's because they're already coming to a retina specialist for some kind of treatment. Exactly. That was our interpretation of these results as well. These patients are usually under routine care from a retina specialist already. And we did observe a similar pattern for patients with glaucoma and a history of cataract. So give us the upshot. What were the final factors that were linked with loss to follow-up status? Loss to follow-up was most closely linked with being at least 80 years old, using Medicaid or having no insurance, living further away from a provider, male gender, and having visual acuity worse than 2040 at the time of diagnosis. Those under the care of a retina specialist were least likely to be lost to follow-up, as were those with a choroidal neovascular membrane in their fellow eye or non-retinal diseases such as glaucoma. And why does all of this matter? Well, anecdotally, I think most retina specialists can tell you that patients often feel really discouraged with a diagnosis of geographic atrophy, particularly because there aren't really any treatment options for them, and some don't see the point in coming back. But we could soon have a geographic atrophy drug that's FDA approved. We need to know real-world practice patterns so that we can effectively reach the highest risk groups, and we've got a lot to learn about managing geographic atrophy patients in the coming years. This is really just the first step. Thanks for sharing your research, Dr. Borkar. Thanks for the opportunity. Hope to join you again sometime. The COVID-19 pandemic laid bare some dynamics of healthcare distribution in the United States. Generally speaking, white patients have greater access to care than non-white patients, and treatment patterns and outcomes reflect this. What exactly do those dynamics look like in retina? To scratch the surface on this complex topic, we asked Dr. Ali Khan to join us on the podcast. At this year's ASRS meeting, he spoke about his research exploring a potential link between race and visual outcomes in patients with DME who were treated with ranibizumab. Dr. Khan practices at Mid-Atlantic Retina and Will's Eye Hospital, both located in Philadelphia. Dr. Khan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, uh, Scott, for having me. Appreciate the time. You performed a broad meta-analysis of various studies. Which studies did you look at and which data points were required for this research? So ultimately, we wanted to look at outcomes of patients with diabetic macular edema treated with ranibizumab. And ultimately, we looked at five clinical trials. Three of them were from the DRCR network, which were protocol ISMT. And then two of them were from Genentech, which are Rise and Ride. And ultimately, uh, only two uh, races could be compared in a statistically meaningful fashion. And that was black and white patients simply because the enrollment numbers of other races was not high enough. Ultimately, we included patients who had best corrected visual acuity data at baseline and month 24, and all of them had to be treated for DME with ranibizumab. And ultimately, we uh, compared about 928 white patients and 181 black patients in the study. What were some of the findings of the meta-analysis? So we ultimately looked at, like I said, baseline and month 24 and found that on average, white patients gained 10 letters of visual acuity, while black patients gained 
7.8 letters. And while that might not seem like a, a huge difference, it was actually statistically significant with a p-value of, of 0.04. So we also looked at uh, the percentage of patients who either gained 15 letters and who lost 15 letters. And we found no real difference between uh, black and white patients in terms of losing 15 letters. However, a higher percentage of white patients gain 15 letters, approximately 35% versus 28% in black patients. And this difference, uh, the p-value is 0.05. It equaled to 0.05, so it did not actually fully achieve statistically significant uh, fashion, but uh, it was close. So we had slightly higher percentage of, uh, of white patients who who gained 15 letters and like I said before, a statistically significant uh, difference in terms of the total number of letters gained. I understand you also looked at individual studies included in the meta-analysis. Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. So uh, we ultimately wanted to find out, you know, why would such a difference that we, we noted in terms of letter gains happen? Is there there's something that we, we should be looking at or is there a difference between the, the two races compared that uh, would make sense of the data. And ultimately, at each uh, study, we, we found that rise and ride actually had the biggest difference between white patients and black patients in terms of letter gains. In those two trials, white patients gained uh, 12.7 letters, while black patients gained 6.5. So we looked a little deeper at the data in those uh, two studies. And, and how we did that is with what's called a propensity score matching model. And ultimately, what propensity score matching tries to do is reduce bias from confounding variables that may be present uh, at baseline. So we looked at age, uh, sex, baseline hemoglobin A1C, baseline vision, the number of injections people received in the trials, and the total number of visits to try to create uh, groups that were more directly comparable at baseline. And again, this is a statistical model to try to explain findings, but uh, it doesn't uh, necessarily replace the top line findings that we found. I see. And what did the research team find after the propensity score matching model was used? So ultimately, we looked at several baseline characteristics in the propensity scoring model, which is basically a statistical method to try to reduce bias from confounding variables. And the variables we looked at were age, uh, sex, baseline hemoglobin A1C, baseline central subfield thickness, baseline visual acuity, the number of ranibizumab injections, and the total number of visits. So when we found white patients and black patients with very similar baseline characteristics, as I just mentioned, we found that that letter difference gain was no longer uh, significant. So in the propensity score model, which included about 40 patients, in the white and black subgroups. The letter difference was you know, positive 10.4 letters in the black subgroup and 11.6 in the white subgroup. So that was no longer considered statistically significant. Is there any value to using the same propensity score matching model for every study in the meta-analysis as you did with Rise and Ride? Well, we found in the other trials, there was not as large of a difference in letter gains between the white and black patients. And in fact, um, in protocol T, uh, black patients actually gain more letters than white patients. So um, ultimately, you know, we looked at the studies with the largest difference that fit the results that we found for the overall meta-analysis. And also, uh, we had kind of a, a wealth of baseline characteristic data in Rise and Ride, which was graciously provided by Genentech for this analysis. 
we did not have all of that data from the DRCR net because that data is not publicly available, but for the rise and ride trials, we had access to that data and that's why we chose to do the propensity model for those studies in particular. Dr. Khan, what's the upshot of all this data? What are the take-home points that you think apply not just to DME, but to the field in general? Well, I think it just underscores, uh, you know, I talked about this at the ASRS meeting as well, that we are still sort of asking these questions and ideally we'd be able to answer them with the primary data from each clinical trial. And to do that, we simply need better enrollment of underrepresented minority subgroups. And again, this study only compared white and black patients because the other racial subgroups simply did not have enough patients enrolled even across the five trials for meaningful statistical analysis. So I think, you know, the retina community, I think even the industry sponsors and our, and our public funding sponsors like the NEI, you know, know this is a problem that we need to start working harder at. And I think this study helps underscore that we simply need to do a better job of enrolling these patients and we need to help each other figure out how best to do that because every city is different. Every population in the country is different. Uh, even saying, you know, an Asian race, that can mean a lot of different things. So I think it's going to take some more work to, to make sure that the outcomes are uh, as good for every racial subgroup as we, as we expect. And, you know, I think these drugs work great. You know, ultimately, uh, all of the races in this, in treated with ranibizumab for DME gained a significant amount of letters. But uh, is there something more we can learn from that? Is there, you know, certain certain differences for subgroups that we should be paying attention to. I don't think we would know that unless we enrolled more people. So that's my biggest uh, take home. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for a great conversation. And thanks again for joining us here on New Retina Radio. No, thanks again for, for having me, guys. It was great talking to you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. You know what to do. Rate, subscribe, and tell other people about the podcast. We have one more episode coming up that covers ASRS 2021. So stick to your podcast feed to make sure you get the update.